Why are there so few black and women CEOs of restaurant companies? One reason? Activist investors. Hello, I'm Jonathan Mays, Editor-in-Chief of Restaurant Business, and in this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, I speak with James White, the former CEO of Jamba, and Thomas Lynch, Senior Managing Director of the private equity firm Millroad Capital. White has joined Millroad to be part of the firm's Progressive Governance Fund, which seeks to improve diversity at smaller companies through targeted investments. White and Lynch argue that activist investors ultimately hurt the long-term value of the restaurant companies they target, but they also argue that activists hurt diversity, frequently by pushing out black or women CEOs or board members and then nominating mostly white men. Their fund seeks to change that by taking investments in small-cap companies, then helping them fight off activists while encouraging more diversity among boards and long-term value creation. Both White and Lynch have an extensive history with the restaurant space, White and Jamba, while Lynch's Mill Road has been a frequent investor in restaurants such as Noodles & Company and the fast-casual chain Rubio. This is a fascinating episode, so please have a listen. Okay, I am here with James White and Thomas Lynch. Guys, welcome to the podcast. Jonathan, delighted to be here. Good to be here. So, um, James, let me. I'm going to start off with this question. Um, I think at, at one point we probably had, mm, I'm thinking, four to five uh, black CEOs of, of uh, publicly traded restaurant companies. We have zero now. Why is that? We, we actually had six. So, and, and I was actually pretty proud of the, the fact that there were six uh, black public company CEOs around the time that I was CEO at Jamba. Uh, as I fast forward and look at uh, there being zero uh, black CEOs, I could have never imagined uh, looking at the, you know, kind of the mi midpoint of, uh, you know, kind of the 2015, 14 era that there would be zero uh, today. And one of the things I used to do is hold out this industry as a fantastic example of what corporate America should look like. Uh, but one of the things, and we'll talk about this more, the industry was just devastated uh, for a number of different reasons by activists that uh, swept through the industry. Uh, from my perspective, they did a couple things that I think people are maybe uh, not as aware of. They uh, did very little to create any value. Uh, they damaged many of the brands. Uh, they devastated corporate cultures and they literally wiped out diversity um, in the restaurant uh, space, which is unfortunate because we've got an industry that has a significant amount of diversity up through uh, the general manager ranks in the stores uh, at that kind of level. We've got actually uh, good diversity in this industry, and there should be a clear pipeline to uh, the C-suite and the CEO roles in this industry. So are, are you saying that that activist investors pushed out uh, Black CEOs and then didn't really pay mind to diversity um, in the aftermath? Yeah, I'd make a, I'd make a couple very pointed uh, statements here. If, if you looked at the activist campaigns, I think there were uh, 58 in total in the last decade uh, that actually ended up in 29 uh, CEO transitions. Uh, 
28 of the replacements were white men uh, based on the research that, that we've done. Uh, what I would point to is the lack of diversity in the boardroom is where I always start. Uh, mm-hmm. That lack of diversity, uh, in addition to the, um, you know, really kind of limited playbook of, of activists and kind of limited networks that they have for uh, potential replacements and board members, you actually had uh, two impacts. It literally wiped out all the black CEOs. Uh, but if you look at those same boardrooms, they're less diverse than they likely were uh, mm. around 2015 or so as well. Wow. So this uh, leads into, I guess, the, 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 the fund that you guys are creating. Thomas, let me ask you this. First off, tell me a little bit about Mill Road Capital. You guys have been involved in the restaurant space for a bit. Yeah, I mean, Mill Road Capital was formed 15 years ago, and the basic idea of the firm uh, was to bring private equity skills to kind of uh, the neglected uh, uh, microcap public companies. So uh, we have a mandate in at Mill Road Capital to uh, invest in the public securities of them, uh, invest in uh, structured securities, uh, or to help them go private. So it's a very uh, broad mandate. And over 15 years, we've probably invested in a total of, I don't know, somewhere north of 300 companies. Mm-hmm. So tell, tell us about the uh, Progressive Governance Fund. Well, the idea of the Progressive Governance Fund, you know, it, it starts by addressing a broader problem. And, you know, the broader problem is this. If you look at, at public securities in the United States, the most fundamental thing that's happened over the last 25 years is passive index funds have become the largest shareholder, absolute largest shareholder. And, you know, passive index funds, the idea for them is to be low cost and to match the index. So they don't have any fundamental interest, economic interest in improving the governance, improving the operations or improving the diversity. They may in general want that, but since they're low cost, they don't have the resources to do anything about it. And so, so what you've seen is you've seen the kind of the regular individual shareholder being replaced by this passive index fund uh, that's a low-cost entity that really can't change governance in any way because they don't have the people or the structure to do it. And on the other hand, what you've seen is this flood of money, activist money coming in. And you know, it's both James' perspective and my perspective that yes, activism does work in some cases, but broadly, it's not a powerful and effective tool. And it's not a powerful and effective tool for a number of reasons. You know, it. Uh, it's always confrontational. It generally doesn't bring operational, uh, a broad operational toolkit to the table. And it almost always destroys diversity in companies. And so, you know, what Mill Road Progressive Governance Fund is, is formed to do is to sit somewhere between the activists, the adversarial activists, and the uh, passive index funds, and to bring to these companies a broader operational toolkit, a longer term uh, uh, investment perspective and a support of diversity. So one of the things this fund commits to do is that at least 50% of the directors that we nominate will take big public positions 
We'll enter into conversations with the board of directors and we'll look to get board seats in a number of the companies where we invest. And we're committing that at least 50% of the directors that we nominate will be uh, uh, women and people of color. And one of the reasons we believe that's important is that the way boards have evolved in America is they're, they're really composed of a very closed social circle. And as a consequence of that, kind of in, 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 in a changing economy, uh, they're just not appropriate for the economic situation where we live in right now. Mm -hmm. And I guess Why? the only build I'd have to that would be if, if we look at the uh, the year of 2020 and we think about the combination of the pandemic and the racial reckoning, uh, you've got many management teams in this industry in particular that are being held differently into account from both consumers and employees. My perspective is that you're going to uh, see really ch challenges uh, in some of these companies that lack diversity, both in the boardroom and in the, in the management ranks as we reopen. And you're going to see companies that are significantly advantaged that actually get this point differently. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I'll jump in and I'll say that the, all of the things that James said about activism and its effect on the restaurant industry, you see actually broadly applied to activism and its effect on all industries. I'll just give you a couple of numbers that uh, if you're a women, woman CEO in the United States, you are not one, not five, not 10 times more likely to be attacked by an activist. You're 27 times more likely to be attacked by an activist. You know, at the end of all activist campaigns, boards tend to be 16% less diverse. Or if you just want a simple vision to put in your head, we review over a course of five or six years, 94 board directors that Carl Icahn nominated in proxy battles, and not a single one was a woman. Wow. So across the board, activism has a consistent and long-term history of destroying diversity, not creating diversity. Huh. So, oh, uh, I wasn't actually, I mean, I, I mean, I knew that, um, uh, I mean, I, I knew that activists were a lot more likely to target uh, uh, companies operated by women CEOs. I didn't realize it was that um, egregious. Um, and, so and you know, the same thing can be said for racial identity is, is after, if you look at the three, we, we did also did a study where we looked at, at who went on boards after activist campaigns. And we looked at 351 people who went on boards after activist campaigns, 4.6% were people of color, you know, way under, under disproportionately represented. So it's just across the board. That's, that's one of the negative fallouts of activist campaigns, of reduction in diversity. What are the what are these activists costing these companies by ignoring diversity on 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 the boards? My view is a couple of things. I think you're you're limiting uh, the perspective, the capability, potentially the voice of the consumer uh, in a more thoughtful way. Uh, you're limiting a perspective on uh, bringing a viewpoint of the workforce. 
uh, into that room for that conversation. So uh, at the root of it all, at least for me, is it is actually destructive kind of culturally uh, to many of the brands and many of the companies where we've seen activists kind of sweep through uh, those companies. And, and if you look at the research, one of the things that it shows is that uh, boards that are not diverse have much less pay equality than boards that, that, that are diverse. And so what that means is, is it, uh, you know, a less diverse board diminishes ambition um, and diminishes, uh, you know, the whole meritocratic culture of an organization because people come to believe that they're not going to be given a fair opportunity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, there is definitely plenty of research out there, you know, that draw a pretty clear line between company performance and the diversity of the boards that are backing them. And it seems like, I mean, to me, it just seems like for a selfish reason, I mean, as, you know, forget everything else, um, like from a selfish bottom line reason that it makes more sense to me to have a wide variety of voices that are in um, all layers of management, um, you know, at, at, at a corporate level, simply because you're making sure that you're, you're getting all of these different uh, voices and perspectives in there. You know, you are recognizing different markets and different uh, strategies and that sort of thing. It makes more sense to me that you would want to, you would want a diverse, a more diverse uh, corporate board. Well, you know, I think it's one of the powers of the strategy, which is a lot of time when when people talk about diversity and talk about equal opportunity, there's always this claim being made that it's a zero-sum game. To give to someone, you have to take from someone. In a fund like ours, I think what we go out and we say, and, and I think the evidence is entirely behind us, is that diversity and equal opportunity isn't a zero-sum game, it's a positive-sum game. It benefits shareholders, it benefits employees, and it benefits customers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, Tom, maybe one of the things you should comment on, you, you've got the big in, institutional investors that are actually committed to this, but they don't have a path to really get to this solution. And we think this is the void we close in the marketplace. That's right. I mean, if you look at the big passive index funds, all of them are committed to diversity. But the fact is, uh, given their cost structure, they can't nominate slates. They can't identify board members. They can't uh, bring judgment to the effectiveness of the governance of, uh, of a board of directors or whether there's equal opportunity in the company. So in a sense, one way we look at this fund is look at these big passive index funds. We're a way that they could outsource their governance, their management of operations and their respect for diversity. And they could outsource it to us at no cost simply by supporting us in our initiatives. Mm -hmm. So you're not you're you're not structuring yourselves as like a traditional activist investment fund, is that right? It's you're use the term sponsoring investor. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, the the idea of a sponsoring investor is that a sponsoring investor has signaling value. Okay, so if if Milroad Progressive Governance sponsors a fund, it what it's meant to do is it's meant to signal to the investment community 
that their values relating to governance are being respected. Their, their commitment to uh, social values are being respected and that the company has a board with the private act with, with the private equity skills necessary to drive operational improvement. So what we look at it as, as is sponsoring investor for the investment community means that we are signaling to them that we're getting the things done that they want done. Similarly to the management community, we're, we don't want to be called activists because more often than not, we are going to be looking for management teams that we can back, management teams that we can protect from activist incursions. So maybe we point made at, differently, Tom, if you don't mind me, if, if Mill Road Capital and this progressive governance fund existed when I was CEO at Jamba, you'd have a different outcome. You'd probably have a different outcome a number of places in this industry if this vehicle uh, as constructed existed, there'd be uh, no question um, that a, a different set of solutions would have been made. I mean, that's exactly right. If you look at what James's plan was at Jamba, was to transition the brand to a healthful brand, uh, to improve diversity, uh, to upgrade the quality of the products, and uh, it's exactly the kind of company that we would have approached and said, you know, we'd like to own 15%. We'd like to sit on the board. We'd like to wholly support the initiatives you have and protect you from the activist community. Mm -hmm. And I guess the, here's the bottom line for me. I, I, I had annual returns of almost 23% over the, you know, over the span of, of my career it would have outpaced the restaurant industry, um, by three times or more, uh, the team that followed me in was less than four uh, percent, and ended up selling the, the the company at a significant um, destruction of, of value. So, um, mm -hmm. right, we're very focused on quality management teams uh, that really want to execute longer term plans and have. Uh, longer-term capital uh, partners to to work with, and that believe in diversity. Could you talk, James, about your experience and as a as a CEO who faced an activist? I mean, how does that? I mean, I, I mean, what do you do in those particular scenarios? Um, you know, and I because I remember the you know, I mean, certainly the era that you you know you were you you were the CEO. I mean, that was a very highly activist time at the time. And I think that's it's it's different now, but I think almost 100% of CEOs during that particular era ultimately ended up leaving in the aftermath of an activist sort of uh, campaign. How do you how as a CEO did you have to deal with that sort of stuff? Yeah, I guess the I'd make just a couple simple points. So it's a it's firstly a distraction, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for a, a, a small cap micro cap public company is expensive mm -hmm. you know so you make decisions kind of on on a couple of those uh dimensions that maybe have little to do with the quality of the argument of the activists um and it just it, it leads you down a path that uh, is destructive of value so it's short-term in nature 
some of the initiatives pursued by the activists are things the companies are already working on. Mm-hmm. Uh, in that era, when I was CEO, you had uh, many of the activists just just initiating these campaigns more for the PR value than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, and if you just look at the results, if you went back, there are very few of those in the restaurant industry. If you look back at the history that created value over time, there are one or two. Mm-hmm. but not the large majority of them created any value for the shareholders. Uh, many of the brands were weak and, um, and diversity w- was, uh, you know, certainly one of the fallouts of uh, was sacrifices as a, as a part of that in this industry, you know, both for uh, African-Americans and women. Uh, we've got far few, we've got zero black CEOs and, far fewer uh, women CEOs in this industry. Yeah, we're down to two women CEOs, I think, of publicly traded companies right now. Um, you know, and if you just look at the history of diverse CEOs in the, the restaurant space, I mean, you could certainly make a very, very strong argument to for hiring a more diverse set of CEOs because generally the performance has been, you know, pretty, you know, pretty good for the most part. Um, you know, when you've had a diverse CEO, I mean, if you, you just look it up and down the list, they've generally done a pretty good job as far as uh, I can tell. Um, uh, James, let me ask you this question, you guys. Is, it seems like a lot of activists really target smaller cap companies very aggressively. Like there is a set of um, you know, activists that basically target these smaller cap companies and end up making uh, you know, significant changes, not often for the better. Um, why is that? Why do they target these kind of companies? It's, it's a limited set of resources, you know, so smaller companies are going to have uh, less wherewithal to kind of fight back, uh, you know, some of these, you know, nonsensical campaigns. The CEO uh, is going to need to make a choice of whether they can expend a million or a two million bucks to kind of fight back. And in most cases, th- there's not a million or two million bucks. Um, that, that you'd use to kind of fight those kind of campaigns back, especially in a smaller cap uh, stock. And, you know, in some cases you believe you can find a, a sensible way to coexist uh, with the activists on, on boards. And that's a fatal mistake. And I can just describe, um, you know, because you've got then a, a, a board that is easily influenced, especially at these levels, they're not going to have the skill set to push back, manage, or organize uh, themselves in a way that even if you invited the activists in, you can have constructive uh, outcomes. Mm-hmm. So, did you? I mean, you guys are both pretty pretty experienced in this in, the, in these uh, sorts of things, uh, James. I mean, do you, do you think that your experience, James, and your experience, Thomas, that it can that you could um, use it to sort of protect these small cap companies from, from these types of activist uh, moves? Well, one of the things James is saying is that, and, and it's implicit in your question, is mm-hmm. why do activists attack small companies? And it's because they're easier, right? Mm-hmm. And so our sense is we make it harder because now you've got, if we own 10 to 15% of the shares, 
now you've you it's much harder for you to to take control of the board. And if we go to the passive index funds and say, look, you know, you should support us. We're taking a long-term perspective. We're doing all the things you want. And if they implicitly support us, then these companies find themselves with 40% of their shareholders backing them. And, and no activist is going to attack a company where they're down 40-0 before the game begins. Yeah, simple math. Um, so uh, it's it's my perception, you guys, that, it, I mean, I think over the past few months, you've seen a lot of really big companies in the restaurant space, Yum Brands, McDonald's, Starbucks, that have taken a lot of steps uh, very publicly to increase the diversity of either their boards or their management teams. We've seen a lot of changes to boards. Um, uh, we've seen, you know, uh, some, some aggressive hiring, uh, especially at McDonald's, um, on uh, uh, certainly on the diversity front. Um, but it, it's my perception that the smaller the company you get, the less there is a focus on that. And they haven't done much. It seems like that if we're looking at trying to change the diversity equation, certainly in the restaurant space, that mid and small cap companies are probably a really important target. I mean, if you look Wait, at the numbers, there's, Thank you. there's way less diversity in smaller companies, James. Yeah, my point is, and it and it really starts at the board level, which is where you see policies shaped and changed, and and really sets up the uh, transformation of cultures in the in the C-suite uh, when you've got a commitment um, in the in the boardroom, and we see a lack of diversity uh, in the in the smaller cap uh, boardrooms. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like there's there's a lot of improvements that that they could be that they could make on this one. So let me ask you this: Is what kind of companies are you guys going to be targeting? And I mean, are you going to be looking for specific sectors, or or uh, are there uh, you just taking a look in general? Could you could we see you guys invest in a few restaurants? Where what kind of sectors you plan to be targeting? You know, what we'll largely be <coughs> looking for is small cap companies and. You know, small cap companies are typically defined as those with a market cap of between 500 million and 2 billion. And, you know, there are some sectors that James and I and our team don't really know very well. Like there's a, a good number of commercial community banks in that sector. So, you know, that's something we won't be looking at. But um, broadly, we'll be looking at most value and, and modestly valued uh, companies across the sector. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. All right. So, well, this was uh, fantastic. I really appreciate you guys joining us uh, this week on the podcast. Loved it. Thanks very much. Jonathan, thanks for having us. And that should do it for this week's episode of A Deeper Dive, which was edited by Kimberly Kazmarek. Our work by Nico Hines and Sarah Stewart. You may find this and other episodes of the podcast on our website at www.restaurantbusinessonline.com backslash article backslash deeper dash dive. You may also subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or anywhere else you get your podcasts. I'm Jonathan Mays, your host, podcast producer, and the editor-in-chief of Restaurant Business. Thank you for listening. Music.